0: Welcome back to a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. My name is Jamal. I am a Buddhist. And I'm Jacob. I'm a Christian. How are you doing today, Jacob? I'm doing wonderfully,
1: Jamal. On my way here, I had a beautiful coffee from oh, yes. the new vegan cafe that's opened up walking distance wow. from my house. It is I, are you a it's vegan? living the dream. I'm not a vegan. They yeah. have cow's milk, okay. which is excellent. I have,
0: I have a love of cow's milk, so okay. I appreciate that. Are you allowed to be a vegan cafe and stock cow's milk? Does that not undermine the premise? I I think that's the one
1: thing they have that's not
0: vegan. They
1: they have sausage rolls advertised in the cabinet today, um, but I'm assured that there's no actual actual sausage in the sausage rolls. Yeah, okay, fair enough.
0: Well, very good. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. uh, I'm glad you are hopped up on your dairy full coffee uh, and you have an article for us today. I certainly
1: do. This article is one that was published on Christian Century, the the website and magazine, by a guy called James K.A. Smith, who is a philosopher. Um, and he's, certainly I, I know him for his interpretation of Charles Taylor's massive book, A Secular Age, which I won't pretend to have read. But um, So he's a, a significant Christian philosopher, but the article is entitled, I'm a philosopher, we can't think our way out of this
0: mess. Oh, I'm intrigued uh, both as to what mess he is referring to and um, how he thinks we can uh, not think our way out of it.
1: Yeah, he's not actually, he doesn't define the mess terribly well. Okay. In this article, and I S- strong start. I, I th- yeah, absolutely right. I, I think he means just kind of where, where Western culture and politics and everything else are, are at, um, and he's probably avoiding getting political and, mm-hmm. and other things like that there. But I'll, I'll just I'll I'll give you the opening paragraph because I think it it's just wonderful. The path to philosophy is paved with polemic, and fueled by brash confidence in the power of logic. When I answered the call to be a philosophical theologian 25 years ago, I imagined the world's and the church's problems amounted to a failure of analysis. If only we could think more carefully, the truth would come out. Good arguments would save us.
0: That, that, that reminds me a lot of um, something I've been looking into kind of outside of my spiritual interests at the moment. Um in the kind of, in the world of um, policymaking and this idea of evidence-based policy. And there's this, you know, very big stream of thought around um, social science and kind of that the problems of society can just be solved if you run the right kind of controlled trial. And if you can come up with just the exact evidence and you can make the exact correct policy to solve all your social problems, um, which is a, a great idea, but then Get, gets very messy as soon as you try and actually do it in the real world, and you know, hold on. There's a whole bunch of factors at play where you know evidence and analysis is important, but uh, can't be can't be the only solution.
1: And that's that's kind of the direction he comes from. Um, so, he, certainly from a philosophical perspective, Smith would say that that's an approach from above, right? A top-down kind of Platonic. If you have the right ideas and can just get them in place at the top, everything else is going to flow. From that, um, but as as you said, that's not necessarily how things work in the real world. And and what I find interesting about this article is that it's it's somewhat biographical in nature, um, but it, it very much is telling a human story. So he he describes his pathway to philosophy. He became a Christian around the age of eighteen or so, uh, and in in my words, kind of became addicted to the truth. Mm. That's that's the way that he puts it. Um, and he says words to the effect of um, he felt that this truth had been withheld from him for so long. It was such a new thing for him that he it shouldn't be withheld from anyone else. And he should be constantly you know, getting out there with the truth um, to, so, that, so that other people could have access to this truth that he had. And that's kind of what eventually pulls him into philosophy because philosophy is the study of the truth, I guess. Um, but he, he's, he's skeptical of that now as, as the title suggests. And part of that is, is he then goes on to describe a period of depression in his life and how powerless he felt as a, you know, an professional intellectual to have this thing going on that he couldn't analyze his way out of Mm -hmm. and he couldn't explain his way out of, and he couldn't. Um, knowledge was not the solution for him, for what was going on in his life there.
0: So when when he talks about truth here and having kind of found that truth, is he talking about um, a kind of a religious truth that, uh, that he's then gone through philosophy to look at analyzing or is it a truth that he's arrived at through his kind of empirical philosophical approach that then is supported or contributes to the religious side of it?
1: I think he'd want to distinguish between two truths, perhaps. Um, the one being a kind of an empirical, a reasonable truth, right? One that you can reason your way through. And the other being, uh, I guess, an experienced truth, of one of a better way to, to put it. Um, an and intellectual rather than an emotional truth, perhaps. So he quotes um, Marcel Proust, who says, every day I set less store on the intellect. Mm. Um, and for him as a philosopher, this was a, a dangerous thought to come into contact with, right?
0: Yeah, okay. So, so it's this idea that the... Um, okay, yeah. So the, the multiple truths idea, right? So yeah, the, the, the logical, philosophical, analytic approach can only take you so far and that there's a, there's a necessary crossover point somewhere.
1: Yeah and, and and the the logical philosophical rational intellectual truth um can't be ultimate mm-hmm. is is what smith
0: is arguing so so what does he then think can be ultimate Are you, how how do you access that other side of truth so
1: the where he heads to um i'll see if i can find the the quote here He says, "Um, I've abandoned all hope we can think our way out of the mess we've made of the world. So that's, you know, you can insert however you want to understand that mess there. Um, The pathology that besets us in this cultural moment is a failure of imagination, specifically the failure to imagine the other as neighbour. Empathy is ultimately a feat of the imagination and arguments are no therapy for a failed, shriveled imagination. Uh, It will be arts that resurrect the imagination so I'm throwing my lot in, with the painters and the poets and the musicians and so on.
0: Yeah, I, it's almost like a pushback against the um, the kind of the 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 hard scientific approach that I, that the world has taken over the past you know fifty, hundred years, right? That it's this idea that you know, I think science is excellent at giving us a sense of understanding about a certain number of things you know predominantly the things in the physical world um but i think there's a tendency recently to uh expand the expectations of what that kind of analysis and that kind of knowledge can give us in terms of a full understanding of everything uh you know science has boundaries right in the same way that a biologist would never claim to know anything about astrophysics right you know science as a discipline, as an academic pursuit, you know, probably has a natural boundary when it comes to the metaphysical, you know, that it, it goes to the physical realm, and then it gets to the metaphysical realm, and then philosophy comes in and attempts to understand the metaphysical realm, and then there's a kind of this further question. So, so that's the question
1: where, then, if, if science has a natural boundary, mm. does philosophy yes. have a natural boundary? Because that's kind of dealing beyond the, and, and you talk with um, philosophers about scientism and positivism and and all of that stuff, and they go, well, you know, the scientists step beyond their scope when they try and talk metaphysic. But is there a limit then to the the proper scope of philosophy?
0: Yeah, and, and that's a really good question. Uh, it's not one I've thought of before, so this is good. I like this. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit, I um, I studied philosophy in, in my undergraduate degree, and I remember a real distinct kind of thing where I really struggled to – engage with and debate properly and actually philosophically connect with um, the real kind of hardline positivist science students that were coming and doing philosophy class. And I had a much better time um, having philosophical conversations with, um, you know, one guy in particular who was a Christian, but just in general, like kind of the, the religiously based people that came to philosophy with a bit of a better understanding of the premises, you know, and a bit of a better understanding of, you know, the the bounds of the unknown, you know, and, and not a presumption that we can somehow work every single thing out, you know, and I think th- that's a really important way of engaging with philosophy and engaging with theology, with, you know, walking into it with this understanding of I can't necessarily know everything. And, um, you know, an attempt to do so might be you're leading leading us down the wrong path to begin with.
1: So that kind of, that appreciation of mystery, like is something that you... You have to come to metaphysics with, perhaps.
0: Yeah, um, I mean. So, what do you think? Do you think that philosophy has a natural bounds, and if so, what is it?
1: If philosophy has a natural boundary. I would I would hesitate to to say precisely where that is because I'm, I'm not a professional philosopher. Right? There's all sorts of um, ac- academic lingo and and all of this around that. But I I would say it's it's something. It, I, I would connect it with the limits to which we can know God or the, the limit to which we can understand the divine, mm-hmm. right? We, we can see it in part and we can see bits of it, but um, we, we can't necessarily comprehend the whole because we are finite creatures, right? Like if I could understand everything that God could understand, I would be God, right? That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting that this, this idea has been around a long time and um, Smith draws on Augustine. Uh, which I found quite helpful in the article because young Augustine. Do you know much about not, Augustine? Not a lot. So he was a late fourth century, early fifth century um, Christian philosopher and, and bishop, and um, so on. And in the, the Christian tradition, he's one of the most influential figures. So if you go through history, you go, you know, Jesus, Saint Paul, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and then into Lutheran and Cal- Lutheran Calvin, and, and towards the modern. Era, um, and he's he's best known for his work *City of God*, um, which is basically a political theology of well, there's the city of God and there's this, the earthly city, uh, and how do these two uh, intermix and commingle? And he's writing that at a really interesting time because uh, Rome, if it hasn't been sacked yet, is about to be sacked, and all of these. Uh, pagan Romans are going, well, this is Christianity that's done this to us and we've become weak and, and so it's his defense about that. Um, so a whole whole lot of really interesting stuff that he writes, but his life is really interesting as well. So he starts uh, as a young um, Manichaean um, and is converted to Christianity. Um, and when he is converted to Christianity, he abandons rhetoric for logic. Mm. Um, and he goes, okay we need to understand the world in terms of God and, and how does all of that fit together. But, but over his life, he kind of heads from that and tracks back towards rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks a lot about desire uh, and what does the heart desire and how does that point us to God. And, and Augustine kind of suggests that sin is where we get our desires muddled up in the wrong order. Um, And so we desire small things a large amount or those that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting um, it's an interesting take on that, right? Because I think the Buddhist take goes one step further and just says all desire is where we go wrong, right? Like desiring anything is a problem. Um, So yeah, it's it is something I found interesting. um, You know, kind of talking with you and exploring, you know, uh, Christian theology more is the amount of crossover. In um, there's almost like you know agreeing on the premises and disagreeing on how it plays out. You know that it's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Desire, desire is a problem, right? But you know Augustine says, well, you know, confused desire is a problem, and the you know the Buddha says, well, no, all desire is a problem, right? And and you get you get stuck in the weeds as to to which one it is. But um, but yeah, I I, I would tend to agree with that. And I think back to the other point. I think this is probably somewhere where people various religious traditions have much more in common than the kind of the 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 positivist secular humanists or sorry that, that any of them would have with the with the secular humanists um just because the the premises are different, you know, mm-hmm. that 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 the positivists kind of go, no, we can know everything. You know, that that knowledge is Not bounded, that we, you know, it is possible if we run the right tests to work every single thing in the universe. We might need a
1: supercomputer to hold all of that knowledge for us, right? But but it's purely
0: computing power that's holding us back. There's nothing else, right? Whereas I think uh, theologically bent people of various faiths, I think, you know, probably come at it with that idea that it's actually, well, no, there is a limit to this. And, you know, there is a space in which we need to really really explore what the spiritual and theological approach is, um, which again, you know, the article talking about throwing your lot in with the poets and the, and the, um, and the artists and that kind of thing. I, I've always conceived of art in all various forms as an attempt to capture and communicate emotion, right? And through capturing and communicating emotion, really capturing the sense of something rather than the logic of something.
1: Yeah, and, and that kind of comes down to, I guess, what is knowledge or understanding is the term that Smith uses, and, and what is the nature of truth. Um, and I, I'm, I'd be interested in the, the Buddhist take on this, because you were saying, you know, ultimately the Buddha says, all desire is a bad thing. Um, I, I would say that there's something innate in our humanness which means that we desire things um, and that we can't get away from that. And that at some level we desire truth. Um, and this was an, an Augustinian saying in that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, where, where you is God. Um, and so we have, we have desires. And the only way around that is actually to desire the right thing, to desire what we were made to desire. Uh, rather than to desire nothing at all, so so Augustine would say we never get beyond desire. We just you know eventually find the right desire.
0: Well, yeah, I think the Buddhist take here is that whilst you know I I, I guess it comes back to the core teaching of right suffering and the cause of suffering. Um, so you know desire, or in Buddhism, would probably call it craving and aversion is um is the cause of suffering right so mm-hmm. whenever i suffer in any kind of way or whenever i'm unhappy whenever anything kind of goes wrong it you know, i can track it back to some kind of wanting something or wanting to avoid something um and yes the expulsion of all desire is the goal it's you know you know it's kind of the um it's yeah, the determining factor as to whether or not you're a Buddha or not is, you know, whether or not you you have desire. But there is also there's also an acknowledgement that like that's deeply difficult, right? That like you are going to have desire, and so I, I don't think Buddhists don't go, oh, all desire is bad, just shut off desire and you just you know be done with it. I, I think they recognise there's a path to get there, and I think part of that path to get there is having the right desires. You know, I think the really big one that always comes up is, you know, what about the desire to become enlightened? Mm-hmm. You know, what you know, if, if all desire is bad, what about the desire to become enlightened? But well, this is, is that desire to know truth, yeah. right? Like is that a valid thing? It's exactly the same. And I think, you know, the 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 Buddhists that I've kind of engaged with would certainly say that essentially that's that's kind of the last desire like you're, you' you kind of you hold on to that one and then you know you drop it just on the threshold of enlightenment you go okay cool now now I'm pretty much there I can drop it but you kind of need that to get there so like you need to carry with you some positive desire or some desire that is fruitful and productive um, to guide you on the path to getting rid of desire and as, so does that mean that desire
1: can never ultimately be fulfilled then? a buddhist schema
0: well yes because i think it's the nature of impermanence right so um you know i I think the 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 antithesis to desire is what we call anicca, which is this idea of impermanence so the idea that everything is arising and passing away um that that nothing is ever going to stay so if you want something you might get it but then you're going to lose it or if you don't want something you might avoid it but then it's going to come back you know um actually this reminds me of a story. speaking of um, Christian and Buddhist crossovers. So this is a story that I originally heard of as a Buddhist fable, but I think I've also heard of it as either King David or King Solomon. Okay. uh, So it's about the... I'm going to say David, it might be Solomon. I'll see if I recognize it, I'm curious now. It's about King David's ring, right? Um, So in the Buddhist version of the story, there's a prince, and um, the prince is really caught up in you know all of the the kind of the, the messiness of the world so you know when when his kingdom's going well when the crop is really well harvested he's having parties he's throwing lavish everything's he's you know he's living it up living up the high life and you know really happy but also in this kind of excess and then when the kingdom's going really badly he's super depressed he doesn't come out of his room he just completely like yeah he can't handle it he doesn't really govern at all he just gets really sad um and, and his advisors are like, how do we, this is not sustainable, right? Like we, we need the king to be able to like, you know, actually, you know, be able to to engage with this in a consistent basis. How do we do this? Um, the answer is not democracy because, uh, <laughs> no, although.
1: The, I mean, the electorate
0: gets yeah, exactly. happy or <laughs> yeah, sad yeah, if things yeah. are going well exactly. or not. Or and you yeah, can talk about Buddhist democracy history <laughs> another time. Um, but um. But essentially what they what they come up with is that they, they, they make him a ring and they make him a ring that on the ring it says this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially they instruct him to wear the ring at all times. So, uh, you know, essentially when things are going well, he looks at his ring and he goes, oh, this too shall pass. So he knows that the good times will, will somehow end. So he maybe needs to save something for a rainy day or maybe needs to like plan ahead a little bit. And when the bad times are happening, he looks at it and says, oh, this too shall pass. So he knows that, oh, well, this is not always gonna be like this. That, you know, the sun will come up again, you know, winter will end and, you know, it will be okay again. And so he can he can motivate himself to um to actually engage and, and, mm. and keep going forward. Um and yeah, I mean I, I think that's kind of the core of it, right? That it's uh, that impermanence is what what proves that desire is is problematic, because desire is trying to hold on to something permanently. You know, it's I I want this thing and I want it to stay forever, but that's just, it doesn't work with the nature of the world. And so you have to know that this too shall pass in order to, um, in order to actually properly realize that the desire and craving and aversion are are not good for you.
1: That, that sounds quite similar to the the old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which talks about some of these ideas of, you know, all all humanity are like grass and will fade away and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm I'm still I'm hesitant with this idea that um, therefore all desire is wrong. Mm. I, I would say that what that means is that we are desiring the impermanent when we should be desiring the permanent. And I would I would say that there is a permanent to desire, yeah, which is God, I, right? And, and like, I
0: think that that's the fundamental difference there, right, because in Buddhism there is no permanent. Right? Totally yeah, and so yeah, I, I think in a world In a worldview and in a theology where there is a permanent that does exist then absolutely that's almost a safe place to have desire because you can rely on that well
1: and and that's what i wanted to to jump into just while we've still got a little bit of time because the other aspect of this article where smith is talking about his depression Mm. um and he he describes it as as darkness that's a pretty common metaphor for depression um, and and one of the ways in which he he works out an understanding of this, um, also through through Augustine, but in the words of Psalm one hundred and thirty nine, um, which says, "If I say that the darkness shall hide me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you, Lord. the the night is as light as the day, to you." And so this idea that even in the the darkness and the uh, the feeling of of distance from God, that God is still present in there, and God is still reaching into that. Um, and I know from having spoken with some Christians who have suffered depression that they've they've had this experience of um, not being abandoned, even when they felt at their most abandoned. And and to me, that's part of the. The the value I guess in um, understanding God in this way it, beyond just this abstract idea of something ultimately out there, but also something that reaches in, mm. um, and that's ultimately that's what Christians believe is going on with Jesus, right? And we can go into that another time, but that that God isn't just some something that is out there that we should desire and reach to and strive for, but actually that comes into our existence when we're at our lowest, as it turns out.
0: Yeah. And I've always, I've always thought that that aspect of Christianity, that aspect of having a really clear sense of a universal, permanent, good, constantly present kind of, you know, anchor to kind of, to, to hold your ship to is a really, really useful um, thing. You know, it's something that I've almost been a little bit like, oh man, I wish Buddha's had something like that. Because, you know, like absolutely, I would completely agree with the fact that when we are in our darkest moments, having that really helps. Like th- that's great.
1: I, I would just say like touching on what we're talking about, wisdom in the last yeah, episode yeah. that, you know, there's something Buddhists
0: can have, you know, yeah. go, go on. Yeah. And, but I think like having that, Tangibly and having like a real ability to point to that and go, yes, here is what this is and here is this person that has told me about this and here is how I can access that. I think that's, I mean, I think to me that goes down to the the fundamental um, socio-psychological purpose of all religions, right? It's like that, you know, that the world is chaotic. The world is difficult. The world is going to be... Difficult to understand, and 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 it's going to throw you in all different directions. And so, having a real sense of oh, well, this is consistent, and you know, God is something that I can hold to consistently and with faith in, and not need to, you know, that it, it is the the stability in the chaos. I that you know, to me, that's that's one of the reasons why we as humans um, seek out and 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 seek to connect with the spiritual.
1: Mhm. So so what if I can ask a, a personal question we can cut this no, out if you no, like you know. We don't cut out anything. No, oh okay, okay. Challenge accepted. Uh, one, one take podcast right here. <laughs> <laughs> but but if 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 that is kind of one of the, the things that religion and spirituality does is give you a, a constant amidst the amidst the chaos. Um, how does that constant play
0: out for you then? What 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 is that constant? Um so I think Buddhism and this is probably where I think some of that real the ongoing debate is to whether Buddhism is a religion or not, right? Yep. I,
1: and I think And it's an incredibly interesting debate. Again yes. another time. <laughs> yeah.
0: Another episode. But I think the what Buddhist what Buddhism attempts to do is to essentially accept the chaos and bring to bear an understanding and acceptance of yes, the world is chaotic and you know what, that's okay. You know, so that it, it tr- doesn't necessarily provide a constant because essentially the premise is that a constant is essentially just trying to delude yourself about the chaos of the world, right? Like if you if you have a constant, you are inherently um, ignoring the truth of the chaos. And so... It's almost like the acknowledgement and acceptance of the chaos is the constant, that that you can manage the chaos if you truly understand it and don't get caught up in the kind of the psychological games of wanting it to not be chaos. It's accepting the chaos is the constant.
1: So, so there's never anything beyond the chaos and you can order your own little patch of it as best you can. But even that is going to, you know, the the wind and waves of outrageous fortune are going to beat upon it, and
0: yeah, and 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 that's the thing, right? The the you don't need a constant if you don't care about the chaos. Now, if you, if you are happy in the chaos, then you don't need there to be something to secure you against it. So yeah, you know, the the, the idea is you don't need to anchor your boat anywhere. Just build your boat so it can withstand all the waves.
1: So th- what I'm what I'm hearing here is kind of like. Buddhism as nihilism though. Like it's it, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well and again I, I again I think the distinction here is that nihilism kind of says well there is no point and there is no meaning, right? I think there's a difference between acknowledging the chaotic nature of the world and saying that there is no meaning in that. You know, I think I I think what Buddhism would probably point to is the idea that there is meaning but the meaning is created. You know that yeah, there is no inherent, fundamental purpose to the world, right? You know, we're not put on this earth to do anything. That it, it, again, it's the absence of creation, right? It's the absence of everything
1: is just there, and we yes. experience the world as it is, and that's all we've got access to. Yes, but that but yep. that's
0: not to say that there is no meaning, and there is no um that there is no uh, reason for being within that. And I think nihilism probably goes the other way on that where they say, well, it's all chaotic. And so just whatever. Right. Um, I, a little bit of pop culture here. Have you seen the film that's out recently called everything everywhere all at once?
1: I haven't. You, po- I think you might've mentioned, I might've mentioned before. it to you. It
0: is phenomenal. It is potentially one of my favorite films. Um, I will not spoil it for you, but please go and watch it. Um, but it deals a lot with that. And I think it, I think it actually deals with a lot with that in a real Buddhist sense. Um, uh, and I, I won't go further because that will give give away what happens in the film. But um,
1: I'll have to I'll, I'll watch it and we'll do an episode on it. Yes, yeah. we could
0: probably do that. Um, but yeah, it it really deals with that question of chaos and nihilism and how you respond to that and how you find meaning in that. And it's really interesting on that front.
1: Yeah. So, because because there's an aspect there almost of uh, like you can you can deal with the chaos in in bad faith or in good faith. Yeah. Then exactly. Um, and and I would. I would want to dig into. We don't have time now, but like, w- why one is bad faith and why one is yeah, good faith. yeah, and, and there's a subjectivity super, there
0: that yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I, I thirty minutes has flown by, um, so I, I must, I must, uh, I, I must insist that we, Bring we, we the have order. the joke. No, you oh, have the joke. We uh, couldn't
1: possibly finish without the joke. Couldn't
0: possibly finish without the joke, um, and I, I was reminded of one based on our, our talk of darkness and light and um, and, and ships. Um, so a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar and th- they walk into the bar and there's just like these bright lights coming from out the back and it's just huge. And like, like you can hardly see anything. It's so bright out the it's back, like the opposite of a nightclub. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, so you're know, like the, bar bars got regular lighting, but the out the back is just like this huge amount of light and they go to the barkeep and they're like, Hey, like what's going on? Like what, what's with that line? It's like, Oh, it's just Noah. It's just, it's just Noah out the back. And, and they're like, like, what the hell is Noah doing? Like, yeah, yeah. Like he's got an arc or something. Like, 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 Why is there so much like, why is there so much light coming in? It's like, Oh no, Noah's arc. Yeah. It, it has floodlights.
1: That is appalling.
0: Yeah. There you go. Yep. Um, a get, fun- get used to that listeners. I apologize for my co-host. <laughs> hey, you, you are the one that wanted this name for this podcast. And so I was the one that insisted we then had to do a joke every time. Okay.
1: So. It's a, it's a, it's a team effort I, <laughs> take, I take responsibility for my part it's a team effort um, the, the chaos of humour
0: yes now do you, do you have any last comments you want to make do you have anything else you want to bring up from this article I found this really interesting um, yeah I think it's um, it's it's made me think about the boundaries of philosophy in a way that I haven't um, thought about before and I know we we deviated a bit as we are want to do um, but that that's a really interesting kind of line of thinking to go down as well I should put some thought into that
1: I'll just I'll, I'll finish with a couple of of words from Smith in his conclusion, where he says, philosophy doesn't speak imagination. The logician speaks a tongue that's foreign to the heart. Poetry and literature and painting are a glossolia that the imagination hears in its own language. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really deep and profound in there. And that the, the arts, music, literature, um, visual art, all, all of those in their different ways speak to our hearts and our desires in a way that works differently to our minds. So
0: something to unpack and think further about. For sure. Um, That's some lovely words to end on, Jacob. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, We can, as always, be contacted at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com. We will be back next week with the the next instalment of a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. Thank you very much for your time, Jacob. Thank you,
1: Jamal. And we'll just throw out as well, the music is by Kevin McLeod. And we will,
0: well, we won't see you. You'll hear us next week. I, I, unless, unless this is the last time you listen to us and you've given up, in which case we're sorry and we understand.
1: And thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode.
0: <laughs> Have a good one.